We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much. So many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Ave Maricela, Dei Mater Alma, Atque Semper Virgo, Felix Steve with Sons of I'm coming at you on the 3rd of April 2020 with Alan Finister to talk about cri- uh, not crisis, there's always crisis, but councils which were due from crisis. Uh, the book, uh, The Church in Crisis by Philip Hughes, I thought was fantastic. And Alan and I were talking about it and thought about this idea. I don't, Alan, thank you back. Thank you again for joining. And uh, thank yeah. you. How you feeling? Okay, okay. I've, I've been a bit under the weather. I don't think it's coronavirus, but I'm mostly recovered. Thank you. And if you if you guys like his mug, <laughs> <laughs> that's the Pope that got rid of the, that suppressed the Jesuits. <laughs> <laughs> so, Alan, take it away. Yeah, sure. Well, um, uh, ecumenical councils um, or councils in general. Well, I mean, uh, the... Um, uh, well, obviously, the first council that we know about um, is the Council of Jerusalem in the Acts of the Apostles, which determined uh, the question about whether or not converts to Christianity had to follow the ritual law of the Old Testament or not, and said they didn't, and um, made some. But I mean, uh, so that, as you as you indicate, arose out of a crisis. It also uh, made some disciplinary provisions about abstaining from uh, the meat of strangled animals and. Uh, and uh, also abstaining from pornea, which uh, probably means fornication. It's a bit, uh, it's a bit uh, controversial what the word pornea means. But anyway, um, uh, probably meant that, you know, abstaining from the kind of marriages that pagans thought were okay, but which Jews did not correctly <laughs> think were okay. Um, and uh, and uh, it's, it's, it's very tricky about the chronology, but the, the, the big argument between St. Paul and St. Peter in, in Galatians is in some way entangled with the... Um, the uh, Council of Jerusalem, whether or not it comes before or after or exactly what's going on there. Um, I remember I looked into it a lot one time many years ago and and I concluded that that incident occurred after the Council of Jerusalem, but I can't remember all the arguments that I I put together at the time. But I I thought it was um, an argument over the discipline, interestingly, which reflects on a lot of subsequent councils, that, that, um, that the Christians in Antioch were not paying a lot of attention to worrying about the meat of strangled animals. Um, and uh, St. Peter came along and he was like, you know, flipping burgers with the rest and there was no problem. And then uh, and then St. James, uh, um, our Lord's cousin and the first uh, 
first bishop of Jerusalem, uh, he was then really annoyed because he uh, he managed to broker this deal that was going to keep the uh, Jewish Christians happy, and Saint Peter was not observing it as well as he might. So, so he sent some chaps to say, "What are you doing? You're making me look like an idiot here." And so Saint Peter's like, "Oh gosh, gosh, yes. Where did you get these burgers? Oh no, what am I going to do?" And um, and then he stops uh, he stops eating with the uh, with the Gentile Christians because he's he's worried that he's letting down James by doing so and then St Paul completely loses it because this is giving the impression that he thinks that, that there are foods which are intrinsically ritually unclean and therefore he's giving scandal about the doctrinal point and um, and uh, and he has an open uh, argument with St Peter poor old St Peter is kind of stuck there in the middle because uh, he doesn't want to give doctrinal scandal but he doesn't want to undermine the church's discipline at the same time and let down James and uh, so that was my reading of it but uh, that was great in the yeah. book of Acts you see Peter flipping burgers <laughs> yeah, well uh, the burgers was an embellishment I, I, I confess um, but, uh, <laughs> um, but anyway Acts 6 <laughs> <laughs> so um, I think the the context for understanding where councils arise from uh, and, and is and of course I mean Catholics have found this particularly difficult since uh, Vatican I, because Vatican I is so fulsome in the authority that it gives to the Pope that uh, it's quite easy to kind of get to Vatican I, read its documents, and think, well, why do we need any more councils ever again? Because basically the Pope can do everything the council can do. And uh, that is actually something which is considered by the uh, Bishop Gasser, the bishop who wrote the, um, he was the chairman of the committee that wrote the, the definition of papal infallibility and universal primacy, which uh, was given by Vatican I. And, and, and he considered that and, and, in, and, and it's discussed, uh, I don't want to jump miles ahead, I'm just trailing it. It's, uh, it's, it's discussed in his, what's called his relatio, which is his report back to the council explaining why he, made certain amendments to the text and why he didn't make other amendments and then immediately after that report the council fathers voted so it's a really important speech um uh, because it's the re it's the basis on which the council fathers voted for the definition of papal infallibility and what's called universal ordinary jurisdiction that's the pope's power to act as if he were the bishop in every diocese in the world um, and, uh, and and he discusses that question there and in quite quite a satisfactory way. Um, you can, uh, again, I don't want to jump ahead, but you can buy, uh, Ignatius Press published an English translation of that called The Gift of Infallibility. And uh, Vatican II actually cites that speech four times in its consideration of papal infallibility in Lumen Gentium. So they treat it as a very important document, oh. even though it's not in itself an authoritative document, but it, it provides very important context for understanding those doctrines. Anyway, so um, uh, so I think that uh, so, but it's, it's easy to think. Well, why? What's the point of councils? We've got the Dustin Bishop, we've got the Pope. We don't really need anything else. They often seem to cause a lot of trouble. They often come out of, uh, of, of kind of crisis moments, and they don't always resolve them. Um, so you know, they seem to be more trouble than they're worth in some ways. Um, but I mean, you know. Uh, it's easy to also to look over the history of the church and see that the papacy can can you know fire off uh, slightly imprudent measures from time to time and, and uh, as well. So so councils don't have a monopoly on making things worse. Um, and uh, the um, uh, so uh, <coughs> I think they and in very in the very early church you can see the popes doing very sweeping things. You know so so you can see that the popes are, are using their universal ordinary jurisdiction in the early church so 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 again that 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 makes it look as if 
um, you know, why do we need councils? So, so for example, about on the papal side, one of the earliest of all documents after the New Testament is the letter of St. Clement mm -hmm. to the church in Corinth. Mm -hmm. And he's, he's the fourth pope. And uh, although liberals and Protestants desperately try and deny that he was the fourth pope, they have, don't have any ancient evidence on their side. It's all kind of weird and wonderful speculation of the type beloved of biblical critics, which they're indulging in in order to try and um, avoid uh, admitting that St. Clement was the fourth pope. But anyway, he, he wrote this letter, which survives, and he's very, very clear, you know, you Corinthians, you've been naughty, shut up and do as you're told, I'm to, you know, he uses the plural of majesty as well, which, the, I mean, you know, we tell you to do this. Um, uh, and, um, uh, and, and, and in fact, the liberals and the Protestants try to use that to argue, oh, well, that shows that he's really just writing on behalf of a committee and he's not really the Pope. And there isn't, in fact, a Pope at this time. It's all nonsense. I mean, Pope St. Victor the I um, in the second century, we have surviving documents from him where he uses the plural of majesty as well. And there's no uh, there's nobody suggests that he wasn't the Pope. So so, so the idea that that's not why he's, that's why he's using the word we is, is, is obviously nonsense. But but uh, anyway, so Corinth, obviously, is a long way from Rome. I don't know if you looked at a map, but it's in Greece. And, uh, and, and he's telling the Corinthians, who, you know, famously a church found by St. Paul. So, you know, nothing to, nothing to sniff at. And, um, and, uh, and he's, he's very much telling them what to do. Um, now, <clears throat> if you were an on-the-ball anti-Catholic, if, say, you were an Orthodox or something, um, rather than just a sort of Protestant or a liberal, then, then you might come back at that by saying, well... Um, uh, well, Corinth was, although the Orthodox don't like admitting this, but Corinth was uh, actually in the Roman Patriarchate. It was part of the Roman Rite in in the very early church. So, so you can say, oh, well, that's why he was allowed to tell it what to do, not because he was the universal pastor or whatever. Um, and uh, but um, uh, in the second century. Um, uh, various popes, uh, I think Pope Eleutherius and Pope Victor, had um, a, uh, a big argument with people in Asia Minor, so that's modern Turkey, which has never been part of the Roman Patriarchate, about what day to celebrate Easter on, mm -hmm. um, whether or not to celebrate it on the day of Passover or on the Sunday afterwards. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, almost all the church has always celebrated Easter on the Sunday after the first full moon, no, first first Sunday after the first full moon after the vernal equinox. Right, that's it. That's how you work out when Easter is. And, um, but, uh, but apparently a lot of people in Asia Minor were quattro, quattro decimans and then they, they, uh, they celebrated it just on the, uh, the 14th of Nissan, the, um, on, on Passover itself. And, um, uh, and the Pope got very annoyed with them and told them that he was going to excommunicate them if they didn't give in. And uh, in fact, um, St. Irenaeus, very great saint, uh, wrote against the Gnostics, some of the most important writings from the second century, probably the most important Christian writings from the second century. He uh, he was Bishop of Lyon, although he was from the East originally, but he was from, he was the, ended up as Bishop of Lyon in France, and he, or in Gaul as it then was, and he, uh, he, he talked down the Pope from the parapet and said, look, you know, these guys have been doing this for a long time and the apostle john lived near them and and he probably did that a bit as well you know you know the being a bit of a blurry bit between the jewish rites and the christian rites in the very very early church while the apostles were still alive and you know you know cut them a bit of slack your holiness and so the pope did kind of back down from that and it wasn't until i think the council of nicaea that they permanently banned celebrating easter on the, on passover um but uh, but the but the fact that he thought he could do it 
um, it clearly shows, and Irenaeus didn't think he couldn't do it, he just tried to persuade him not to do it, shows that the Pope had universal ordinary jurisdiction in the second century. And, uh, and, and, and therefore, by implication, that's what, that's what Clement was up to with the Corinthians in the first century. And um, so he, uh, yeah, um, and, and Asia Minor is very important because Asia Minor, that becomes the territory of the Patriarchate of Constantinople itself. So, I mean, it's very clear he's, you know, parking his tanks on somebody else's lawn and he's threatening to fire and he thinks he's entirely in his rights to do it. So, um, so yeah, so, so in that case, you know, what are councils for? Well, I think, um, I think uh, you've got to understand the way bishops were elected in the early church. Um, uh, which we've completely lost lost sight of over recent centuries, uh, but which the fathers were very vociferous. That this is the proper way to elect bishops, and um, so so what would happen is is um, uh, you would have clusters of dioceses, right? Um, what become ultimately uh, provinces. So you'd have you'd have a metropolitan, what we call in the West archbishops. Um, and, uh, and and the metropolitan would be the top bishop of a, of, a, of a group of dioceses. It would probably be usually the case that, that that was originally the first diocese in that area, the first see in that area, and that the other ones were kind of were been created out of it later on. That's what had a kind of primacy over them. And uh, if um, when the bishop died, um, uh, the um, say it was an archbishop, say it was a, a metropolitan. And the bishop died, all the suffragan bishops, so all the, the, the bishops from the surrounding seas would come to the place where that bishop uh, lived and had just died. And uh, and then all the, the pastors, all the parish priests, as we call them in England, pastors in America, um, would, would gather together. I mean, obviously, those, those distinctions didn't exist in, I'm using this more modern terminology, but the presbyterate, the priests of the diocese, the priests of the sea would gather together uh, with the suffragan bishops of the surrounding seas and the deacons, usually seven of them, who were in charge of the money um, and who were very important. They were very powerful in the early church um, and much more prestigious uh, in a sort of institutional way than the priests, even though they were technically the rank below. Mm -hmm. So there are various statements by fathers reminding deacons that they, you know, to be properly respectful to priests because, because technically the priests outrank them because the deacons were the guys with the credit card. And, uh, um, and, uh, so the, um, anyway, so, <clears throat> um, uh, they'd gather the deacons, the priests and the suffragan bishops, and then, uh, they would discuss who the next bishop ought to be and in the meantime the laity would gather and uh, and it seems to have been a sort of race to the finish basically so usually the clergy would pick on a candidate before the laity did but sometimes the laity would pick a candidate first and um so, so famously in the election of saint ambrose in the fourth century the laity decided that they wanted ambrose to be the bishop of milan who was an unusual choice because he wasn't even baptized he was only a catechumen at the time and uh, and they just started chanting his name loudly it was supposed to have been a baby or something that originally said ambrose and everyone thought yes ambrose and they'll start shouting ambrose 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 and um and the um and then the clergy sheepishly gave in you know because of the terrifying rhythmic chanting of the angry crowd so they agreed but normally what would happen is the clergy would agree first and they would kind of push their guy out um onto the balcony or whatever and then the laity would have to decide whether they were agreeing or not agreeing to this candidate um and uh um 
and they, they they could say no and and you still get this in in uh in Byzantine right ordinations there's this key moment where they they're supposed to say axios mm-hmm. which meaning worthy or anaxios meaning worthy that's the congregation and um uh and i and you know i have heard of real instances um not in the catholic church but in the orthodox church within you know the last few decades where um, at an ordination the congregation shouted anaxios instead of axios there was kind of a riot kicked off so um uh, so i mean um it, it is you know this this is an ancient practice and and basically that's what's happening when you see the pope elected right yeah. it's a kind of they're playing out what uh what used to happen in the early church uh, so that it's not really, I mean, the, the deacon, cardinal deacons are not really the deacons running the money in the Church of Rome. And the cardinal priests are all, you know, archbishop of somewhere else. Um, uh, but but they officially, those are the positions they hold. <coughs> and the cardinal bishops are the bishop of Frassati and the bishop of Ostia and all this kind of stuff. And um, and they uh, and, and they gather there like they would have done in the very earliest days of the church. And they decide who the next bishop of Rome should be. And what's supposed to happen is that the guy pushed out on the balcony is not supposed to be a bishop, right? Of course, everyone forgets this. Council of Nicaea was very firm about this, but it's all been ignored in subsequent centuries. So the guy is supposed to not be a bishop who gets pushed out on the balcony, which means he isn't yet the pope. Because canon law is quite clear that if someone who isn't isn't a bishop gets elected pope, he isn't the pope until he's ordained bishop. So the guy on the balcony really is supposed to be the candidate. You know, he's not actually supposed to be the, the Pope yet. And uh, which is then supposed to give the opportunity for the crowd in St. Peter's Square to say, rubbish, take him away, elect somebody else. <laughs> but of course they can't do it because it's a fait accompli. The guy who they push out on the balcony is already a bishop. Yeah, so but... bingo, he just becomes the Pope. Um, but uh, so, so, I, one of the, so you already had these little subgroupings of the church in the very early church of groups of bishops so if you ended up with a really serious problem about a bishop right then uh where you know it looked like you need to be got rid of then uh the ob because he's been saying very dodgy things then the obvious authority to invoke you know because they didn't have zoom and they didn't have uh, telephones stuff like mm. that in the early church um the obvious authority to invoke was were the people who elected him in the first place because it's the it's the suffragan bishops who preside over the election obviously if it's a suffragan bishops election then the the metropolitan presides over the election but the so there's a bishop who is a me- who's not a metropolitan. He's the lowest grade on the hierarchy. He's been a bit naughty. The job is the it's the metropolitan's job to deal with him. But if it's the metropolitan, then you need the bishops, um, the bishops who elected him, to come and deal with the question again. Um, and uh, and of course, then you get above the metropolitans to the kind of chief bishops in the whole church, who the very first ecumenical council, Nicaea, lists those as Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch. Mm-hmm. So you'd need an even bigger area of bishops to deal with something like that. And they actually had that in the late third century, uh, when when the church was still officially illegal, but it was during what was called the little piece of the church. Um, when the Romans weren't bothering actually enforcing their laws against the Christians. Uh, it ends with the great persecution launched by the Emperor Diocletian, in which he tries sort of outright genocide of the Christians. Um, but in the meantime, there's this period of about 50 years in which the emperors are like, don't bother with the Christians. They reach the point that the Muslims have in a lot of, uh, in a lot of Western countries uh, where they're not that numerous, but there's enough of them that they they make a difference, and uh, and and the government would prefer to, them to be happy rather than annoyed with them. So, so uh, and then 
and then the Christians under Diocletian reach the point where they're so numerous that, that the government freaks out and thinks basically we're either going to be Christian or we're going to have to get rid of them. Um, uh, so, so that's why you get the most terrible of all persecutions, the great persecution um, of Diocletian uh, starting in um, 305. But, um, uh, no, is it 305? It's 305. No, it's 3, 302. Excuse me, it's the beginning of the great persecution. Anyway, so, um, but in the, in the late 3rd century, there's this guy, um, uh, uh, Paul of Samosata, who's the Bishop of Antioch. So he's the third highest ranking bishop in the church. Um, and uh, and he uh, gets into some heresy, uh, probably something called modalist adoptionism, which is basically the idea that there's, there's one Godhead with no real distinctions in the Godhead. Um, except that, that God sometimes manifests himself as father and sometimes manifests himself as son and sometimes manifests himself as spirit. But in himself, there's no distinction between father, son and Holy Spirit. And that while manifesting himself as son, he, had, he, he assumed a human person, uh, into union with him. So it's kind of like a, it, it, it combines a number of other heresies, mm-hmm. but it's not completely clear what, what the, what, um, Paul of Samosata's heresy was, but uh, <coughs> but anyway, something along those lines, and um, uh, and he was deposed. But the Roman Empire was a mess at the time; it, was, it had fallen into three different bits. And there was this kind of terrifying warrior queen called Zenobia who'd taken over the part of the Roman Empire. Great name um, uh, of, of the Roman Empire that, um, that Antioch was in, and she quite liked him. You know, he was very witty at parties or something. She wasn't actually a Christian, but but she thought he was a great guy, and. Uh, so they had a really big synod of all these, all the bishops of what would later be considered the Patriarchate of Antioch to depose Paul of Samosata for his heresies. And Paul of Samosata was like, yeah, well, whatever, you can say that, but I control the buildings and Zenobia thinks I'm great and I'm not moving out. And, um, and so they had this, this big synod. It's probably the biggest council before the ecumenical council of nicaea mm-hmm. most important one but they couldn't get the guy to budge because he had the temporal power on his on his side and then a, a few years later the emperor aurelian managed to reconquer that bit of the roman empire from zenobia and um uh, and he was a pagan as well but he wasn't although he did subsequently try to launch a persecution of the christians just before he died he, at the time, he was sticking with the kind of, you know, little piece of the church policy. And in fact, Aurelian's persecution probably had almost no victims because he died almost as soon as he began it. So it kind of lapsed. Um, but at this point, Aurelian was sort of benignly-ish disposed to the church. And he reconquered this area of the Roman Empire. And uh, the the local bishops are like, yeah, no, no, you're back. Got proper, proper Roman law and order. Get this, get this 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 dreadful guy out of our cathedral and he's like no no i'm the real bishop leave me alone and uh and aurelian is very interesting what aurelian does he's he's a he's pagan although in aurelian's defense he's a solar monotheist uh, as weird a late form of roman paganism where they worshipped only the sun god um so and they tended to be slightly more benignly disposed towards christians than than other pagans but uh but anyway so aurelian um Aurelian says, well, I don't know which of you's right. I don't understand any of this stuff. So he says, well, whoever the Bishop of Rome and the bishops of Italy say is is the real Bishop of Antioch, he can have the building. And fortunately, the Bishop of Rome says, yeah, okay. Oi, Samosata, get out of the cathedral. And uh, so, so he's finally got rid of. But it's very interesting that Aurelian assumes that the Bishop of Rome is the, is the kind of ultimate authority in determining who is and isn't uh, in communion with the church. And then, so that's that's the... 
that so I think that's basically uh, that's the basically the context in which councils arise is that um, is that is that when there's a crisis and the crisis is in the guy who's in authority and not in the bishop who's under him uh, then then the, the bishops who are all equally under him have to deal with it and that's what creates the, the and the crisis is usually a doctrinal crisis mm -hmm. because that's what matters most you know and also you know people were relatively well behaved morally in the first three centuries of the church so i mean you wouldn't join the, the church if you wanted sex, drugs, and rock and roll, because you know you were more likely to be thrown to the lions or, or set on fire while you're still alive. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the crises were likely to be doctrinal crises. So I think that's what. So so I think that's what probably causes the council structure. Um, now, on a on a more theological level, I think what's going on is is there's there's, there's an interplay between two different promises that our lords give to gave to the church. One is the promise of infallibility, mm -hmm. and he gave that to um, St. Peter and his successors, um, and that infallibility belongs to the Pope individually. He can, he can infallibly define something just as Pope, and he doesn't have to call a council. Mm -hmm. and, and, and it's clear that the Popes have believed that for you know, throughout the church, history of the Church, and lots of other uh, Christians have also believed it throughout the history of the Church, but it's been disputed at certain, certain points as well, um, and that was finally resolved at Vatican I. And of course, the Pope can call an ecumenical council, and and it can, or, or an emperor can call one, and the Pope can agree to it. Um, and uh, and he, um, and then that council can act infallibly, but it can only act infallibly with the Pope. Mm -hmm. um, so so again, that kind of seems to raise the question: Well, why did we need the council? It seems rather expensive, a lot of hotel bills, uh, just to have a few more mitres around. But but in uh, the, the, what's going on is the interplay with this other promise, which is the promise of indefectibility. Mm -hmm. Um, and so the so so Christ has promised that the, the whole deposit of faith that is everything which he has revealed publicly for the salvation of the human race, which was complete at the death of the last apostle, will never perish from the full body of all the bishops mm -hmm. until the end of the world. He hasn't promised that about the Pope, right? So he hasn't promised that the Pope will be absolutely right in his private opinions on every single theological question. He hasn't promised that the bishops, uh, God help us, will be right in their private opinions about every theological opinion. But he has promised that that all the truth of the whole deposit will never perish from the whole body of the bishops. Mm -hmm. Right. So so I don't know if you've ever seen the, the 1980s classic film Highlander. Have you ever seen that? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so if you... Um, so in theory... If you went around with a big sword and decapitated all the bishops in the world until there was only one left, then the last remaining bishop, according to Christ's promise, would know perfectly the entire deposit of faith in his one head. Don't give right, any so. ideas out there. <laughs> <laughs> so the... Um, uh, yeah, I had a friend at university who had this. He was irritated by the Anglicans um, continuing to insist that they had valid orders when they obviously don't. And he had this this evil evil plan to um, to invite all Anglican supposed bishops to a dinner party and then drug them and chop all their hands off. Oh, and so, <laughs> so, so they would have to admit that they were incapable of transmitting orders to anybody else. <laughs> Uh, I just remember that scene from Face Off when they get when he, Travolta goes, "I want to take his face off," and the guy oh, goes, God. "No more drugs for that guy." 
Anyway, yeah, so, so on, on the end, which, which scary descriptions. But anyway, the point is that if there was a nuclear war or something and there was only one bishop left in the church, that bishop would, because of the guarantee that the deposit will never perish from the full body of the episcopate, he would know perfectly the whole of the deposit, a bit like an apostle or something. Yeah. And as it is, it's just sloshing around there with with a load of, of, of mistakes and things as well in, in the heads of all the bishops. So it's obviously the most appropriate way to make a final doctrinal decision is to get all the bishops in a room mm -hmm. with the Pope chairing them and say, okay, lads, what do we think about the assumption of St. Joseph? And the bishops are like, yeah. <laughs> and, and possibly, but I'm not sure we should bet the house on it. And the Pope's like, all right, never mind. Then let's go and have, have dinner. Um, and uh, um, so the, um, so that's the, uh, that's the reason the Pope is guaranteed to, not to make uh, a, a false, infallible definition. But that doesn't mean that he can just say, "Ooh, that's me. I can't possibly be wrong." <laughs> let's 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 define that there are eight sacraments and see how God tries to stop. And then he gets, you know, knocked over by a bus. Um, uh, he's not supposed to throw himself from the temple parapet in order to, in the hope that the angels are going to catch him. Here's and, one. I, uh, read, uh, I read uh, our bud Ryan Grant translated uh, Bellarmine's uh, book on the council. Yeah. And you know that phrase that everyone uses uh, when two or more are gathered, I am their oh, yeah. name. Everybody uses that for everything, you know, gather yeah. on the street corner or whatever. Mm. And Bellarmine, you probably know this, but uh, for listeners, if you happen to get the book, uh, but he talks about that first was for the councils. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah. 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 No, that's, uh, yes. Well, it was probably because he's worried about how few bishops were at the council of Trent in the first few <laughs> sessions. Um, but, uh, yeah, but, uh, um, yeah, uh, the council of Trent was like tiny number of bishops to start with by the end of several hundred, but at the beginning it was a, it was like the ecumenical council of <coughs> Trent <laughs> looking around at the 10 people in the room. Yeah. And the yeah. voice in the back here. <laughs> yes, hope, hope poor old Cardinal Pole when he was chairing it didn't have to read out a register of all the bishops in the world. The long silences, <laughs> but um, yeah. So um, Constantine uh, converts in uh, three twelve, becomes catechumen anyway. Um, and he doesn't actually get baptized till his deathbed, mm -hmm. but um, so he he converts in three twelve, and he um, uh, and. Um, and then the uh, the first kind of near miss ecumenical council, which I think actually Augustine refers to as an ecumenical council, but which is not normally counted as one now, is the Council of Arles, uh, which is in Gaul, which 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 uh, Constantine holds a couple of years after his conversion. At this point, he's only in control of the western part of the Roman Empire. Um, uh, the the um, the, the guy in the east is still a pagan, but has agreed to, to to end the persecution of the Christians. Licinius, although he kind of begins to roll back on that, which gives Constantine the pretext for invading his part of the empire. Um, and uh, but the um, uh, but anyway, at this point, Constantine's only ruling the western part of the Roman Empire, and um, he uh, he he initially bumps into this problem with this this group in North Africa called the Donatists. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Donatists were uh, sort of very upset, sort of traditionalists in a way. I mean, in the sense that they were, they were a load of their clergy had not behaved brilliantly during the Great Persecution. Mm -hmm. And there were lots of rumours flying around about how badly they may or may not have behaved at certain times and whether they'd kind of forsworn Christ or handed over 
um, missiles to be, well, not missiles, they didn't have missiles in those days, but anyway, handed over liturgical books mm -hmm. to be destroyed in order to get the Romans uh, off their backs. And, uh, and so there was lots of fear and loathing between the laity and the clergy and lots of suspicion that the clergy had sold out and were no good. And, um, and uh, the, you know, as people often when they get very upset about badly behaved clergy can sort of jump into certain doctrinal errors um, just because they get so annoyed and, and they so so the a classic one for outraged laity to fall into is that the sacraments offered by immoral priests are not actually valid and um, so the Donatists thought that the people who'd in any way given in during persecution, uh, their sacraments are invalid. And I think they even started trying to apply this retrospectively, you know, that, that they had never been valid, even from the, before they gave in. But um, anyway, it's, it's nonsense either way. And because um, <coughs> it would destroy the visibility of the church, you'd never be able to know from one minute to the next. You know, what you find out that your kids were all baptised by some priest who it turns out had secretly, you know, attended some kind of Buddhist ceremony. You're like, oh no, all their baptisms are invalid. And I mean, you'd never know from one moment to the next, so it doesn't make any sense. But the, um, uh, so they, um, but they were refusing to accept. They had the, they they got their own rival clergy, and they 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 were refusing to accept the legitimacy of the uh, of the um, uh, properly officially appointed clergy of of North Africa, and um, and they uh, they appealed to Constantine. Uh, and um, Constantine uh, punted it across to uh, Saint Miltiades, uh, who was the Pope, uh, who was actually from Africa, and um, and he said, uh, and and the the Donatists asked that uh, some bishops from Gaul be be made associate judges with Miltiades in deciding the question, and this the reason why they were doing this is because. Um, uh, Constantine's father, Constantius um, I, had been the emperor in the northwestern corner of the Roman Empire. It's a bit complicated at this period. They had different emperors in different parts of the empire, not because they were rivals in principle, but as a sort of administrative convenience. But anyway, Constantine's father um, had been ruling that corner of the Roman Empire. He was an old officer from that, that time with that emperor, uh, um, Aurelian, the one who was solar monotheist. And he, he was solar monotheist too, and he also didn't like persecution the Christians because he sympathized with them because they were they were monotheists and uh, and so he basically not bothered enforcing the great persecution that was the if, if you didn't want to get martyred uh, and you didn't want to become a pagan you know move to Gaul sharpish if you were living in that period in the Roman Empire because that was so the Donatists thought well if they have some Gaulish bishops associated with Miltiades given that they were never persecuted in the first place, we know that they couldn't have possibly sneakily given in because there would have been no occasion for them to give in. And therefore we can accept their verdict, regardless of whether we really accept the verdict of Miltiades. So Constantine's like, well, that seems like a decent compromise. So he says, go on Miltiades, do us a favor, have a couple of Gaulish bishops, two or three or four or whatever, associated with you in this judgment. And Miltiades doesn't want to annoy Constantine because they've just won over the most powerful man in the world um, to the faith. But he also doesn't like this idea of people trying to get round his authority as pope mm -hmm. so miltiades agrees but then he brings on a load of italian bishops as well more of them than there are of the gaulish bishops thereby undermining the uh, donatist sneaky attempt to uh, to get donatism into the way that the, 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 the question was judged so then then along with with his obedient gaulish and italian bishops miltiades judges against the donatists who are then very annoyed and appeal to constantine again 
and Constantine is 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 in a difficult situation, and and you get this. I mean, some emperors over the course of Christian history are just very naughty and think they can just decide what the doctrine of the church should be. But the better emperors generally have this idea that they have the right to insist that the Pope sorts it out. If you see what I mean, but they don't have the right to decide it. So, like, like the the the, the second to last Byzantine emperor, uh, um, who's Byzantine's a made up term. I mean, he was Roman emperor that's as far as he was concerned. Um, who was uh, Emperor John the Eighth, um, uh, who was at the Council of Florence, the seventeenth Ecumenical Council. He was very clear that he he had the right to ask that a final doctrinal decision be made for the sake of the peace of the empire, but he didn't have the right to decide what it was, mm-hmm. right? Which is about right, you know, because there's this idea that the, the the emperor is the sort of head of the laity, and the laity have the right to say, look, Holy Father, there's a massive doctrinal storm consuming the entire empire. Please sort it out. But they don't have the right to say, and we think the right answer is X, right? So. So Constantine is 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 one of the first emperor to ever have to kind of walk this tightrope, and uh, so so he uh, what he does is he convenes a council of all the bishops in his part of the empire, and he convenes it in Arles in Gaul, presumably thinking that because of travel convenience, most of the bishops who attend will be Gaulish, and then the Donatists will have to just shut up and accept it. So that this this council does meet, and it's a very important council. And it's a sort of semi-ecumenical council because it's a council of half the known world, as it were, as it put, but not the other half. And um, and and the Council of Arles does then um, it just it just agrees with the Pope. I mean, basically, it's like uh, they don't want to. They're there. They're very loyal to the Pope. They're Latin bishops. They they don't want to uh, annoy the Pope. And and so they just say, oh yeah. And the Pope says this, and that's obviously right because he's the Pope. So so it's not. Um, it doesn't. Uh, it doesn't undermine papal authority. And the Donatists don't accept it anyway, even though logically they ought to have done by that point. Um, but um, uh, so so that was kind of the the the, the very last dry run. Before you had a proper, full-on ecumenical council, and then, and then in um, three, two, four, Constantine conquered the eastern part of the empire, mm-hmm. and uh, and when he when he when he landed in that half of the empire, now ruling the whole of the empire, he discovered there was a doctrinal controversy that just kicked off there as well. He must have got really annoyed about this. He thought, "Yay, I found this wonderful new religion. It's going to be the new principle of unity in the Roman Empire." And as soon as he, uh, as soon as he embraces it, he finds this huge rows going on about different subjects, and. Uh, but when he gets to the eastern half of the empire, he discovers there's a huge row going on about this uh, Alexandrian priest called, uh, although he's actually from Libya originally, I think, um, called Arius, who says that that uh, Jesus is a, is a is a supercharged angel, uh, not really a uh, not really um, uh, uh, fully divine, and um, uh, <coughs> and so. He summons another council of all the bishops, but this time it really is all the bishops and bishops from outside of, even outside of the Roman Empire, even possibly from India, um, uh, turn up to the Council of Nicaea in 325 and um, and ultimately condemn Arius. And that is the first ever ecumenical council, meaning not meaning a council with lots of bin uh, lots of bean bags and methodists but a council with um uh, a council with um uh, of the entire ecumene which means the known world a council where we made a decent effort to try and get all the bishops that we know of to attend is basically what, what it means um, and uh, and and so yeah they they um they they produced the two thirds of 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 our of, of the creed that we say at mass the rest of it was was added on later, um, and uh, and condemned Arius, 
and a number of other things like moving a bishop from one diocese to another um and um uh, ordaining women and uh, um and uh, there's and, and ordaining people who'd castrated themselves actually is the first first thing that is banned by the disciplinary canons the council of nicaea which is probably a, a sneaky reference to origin um, because a lot of the bishops there probably thought that the Aryan crisis was really caused by the dodgy Egyptian theologian origin um, from the previous century. And so they, they thought, and he had famously castrated himself and then got excommunicated by his bishop for having got ordained by another bishop. And, uh, and so I think that it wasn't, it's slightly weird when you're looking, what was the first ever disciplinary canon of an ecumenical council? It's like, do not ordain anyone who has castrated themselves. Like, okay, was that really the most pressing issue in 325? But I think it's, it's, it's a sort of um, slightly rhetorical reference to origin, that's my suspicion. <laughs> yeah, was that a real big problem here? <laughs> I hope not. It's, 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 uh, it's interesting that origin Origin took that passage about some make themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, literally um, uh, um, unmanned himself and then devoted the rest of his life to the allegorical interpretation of scripture. <laughs> Must have been a pain somewhere that was reminding him that allegorical interpretation is always one possible <laughs> approach. Um, but there we are, yeah. So, um, so yeah, so that's so sorry, after that very, very long time consuming introduction that 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 is the uh, that's the first ever ecumenical council of nicaea and um uh, it's um and and that then becomes seen as the slowly the ultimate kind of most most solemn form of, of doctrinal authority in the church is to is to have a council and invite every single bishop to it and and the pope always in order for it to be seen as legitimate the Pope always has to send legates, right? So he normally sends two priests, uh, traditionally, although nowadays they're usually cardinal priests, so they're actually bishops. But the but the um, traditionally he would send two priests to the council. So for the first eight councils, ecumenical councils in the history of the church, they were all held in the east. They're all held, in fact, in what is now Turkey, and um, and the uh, um, and the Pope would not attend in person, uh, probably because he knew that the emperor was very powerful. And might try and bully him into doing something he didn't want to do. So best to send his representatives, and then he can repudiate it afterwards if if it goes wrong. So he'd send his two legates, and uh, and and they were sort of officially presiding at the council, although often they weren't actually chairing the council because they didn't have very good Greek. So so in this period, the Roman Empire is kind of splitting into two cultural spheres: one which speaks exclusively Greek, and one which speaks exclusively Latin. And you increasingly have a problem with with um, uh, popes and papal officials who don't actually speak very good Greek. So so often the legates are just kind of sitting there, um, sort of nodding or, or trying to look grave and hoping that their translators will tell them what was going on afterwards. Um, uh, and that becomes a big problem. There's, there's a in the fifth century there's there's a fake council, what's called a latrocinian, uh, which is. Uh, at which um, the, the Bishop of Constantinople is beaten up and, and eventually dies of his injuries, um, uh, called the Second Council of Ephesus, not to be confused with the genuine and ecumenical First Council of Ephesus. Um, and uh, and uh, the papal legates at that, they're, they're kind of 
very nervous about what's going on. They can see that something fishy is happening, but they're not completely sure because of their Greek uh, what exactly is going on. And they, they shout out the veto at the last minute of the council when they see poor old Flavian of Constantinople being dragged off by some burly Egyptian monks to be beaten up in a side room. And they're like, this is not our stop. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, yeah, it was a, it was, um, a difficult business. Um, so, I don't know if you want me to run through the other councils or, or how much time we have. No, it's, so we don't do it for five hours. Yeah. Let's just, yeah, let's do just a couple of councils and uh, we'll do a series of this. Sure, sure. Okay, well, well, if you look at the, the earlier ones, the, the next one, there's loads of councils after Nicaea, because as we were saying about how councils don't necessarily resolve things, they sometimes appear, at least initially, to make things worse. Um, uh, Nicaea, everyone was pretty kind of hostile to... Arianism, and uh, and 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 you know it was overwhelming the 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 vote against it. There were only two or three bishops who refused to go along with the Creed of Nicaea, and they were sent into exile um, at the end of the council. But uh, after it happened, they 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 creeped back in, particularly led by this guy Eusebius, Bishop of Nicomedia, who was a really good clerical politician, and uh, and he sort of inveigled himself and was constantly putting around black propaganda against uh, against Athanasius. Athanasius was at Nicaea as a deacon, assisting Bishop Alexander of Alexandria, and, and then a few years afterwards he was elected Patriarch of Alexandria, and. Um, and they managed to drive out Eustathius, the patriarch of, of uh, Antioch, with lots of kind of nasty made-up allegations against him. Uh, and I think part of what was going on there is that Eustathius was one of those people who thought that um, that originism was the, the 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 followers, the theological followers of origin, mm -hmm. who died. He was excommunicated for disciplinary reasons, and the Pope backed up that excommunication. But the bishops who had ordained him backed him up so he was he was able to hang out in the holy land with the bishops who'd ordained him and uh, and so his position was ambiguous in the church because you know he'd been he died excommunicate but not as far as some of the bishops in the east were concerned and uh, he was like one of these kind of 20th century theologians that uh, that, that some people are so keen on and who, who have a sort of quasi-conservative reputation but in fact when you look under the rock the theology is absolutely terrible and uh, and they're going to have to be dealt with by some later ecumenical council mm -hmm. um and uh, and and so origin was very much that kind of figure and um and and eustathius was kind of like yeah no this is all basically down to origin so so he seems to have pursued a kind of anti-originist purge um as soon as the council of nicaea was over and i think a lot of the people who were supporting arianism were not really Arians. What they were is they were originists. Origen had very dodgy views on the Trinity. They weren't exactly the same as Arius's views on the Trinity. And uh, but they thought, well, if 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 in the course of condemning Arius, they're going to make it all cl much clearer, and in the course of making it all much clearer, they're going to condemn Origen, and our theories are no longer going to be able to be maintained. So I think a lot of the people who were like, for example, Eusebius of Caesarea, there's a confusingly large number of people called Eusebius in this period, but Eusebius of Caesarea, who, who was a bishop from the Holy Land, um, he, uh, he was very, very keen on origin, but also a very big defender of the Arians. Um, but whether he was really an Arian or just an originist who realised that cracking down on Arius would ultimately mean they'd crack down on origin uh, is probably what's really going on there. But anyway, the result was there was um, the, the Arians, or, or whatever they were, um, the Arians broadly defined seized control of the Eastern Empire for decades. So Constantine's 
um, Constantine's third son and second surviving son, Constantius, uh, became emperor in the east after Constantine's death in 337. And he basically backed up the Arians and it was a nightmare. And there were loads of councils endorsing Arianism. Um, and uh, the popes never agreed to them. And, uh, and this is one of the big problems the Orthodox have. They can't really get, come up with an explanation of what makes a real ecumenical council and a fake one, other than it's only a real one of the Pope says it is, and they don't want to agree to that because then they'd all have to become Catholics. So they really struggle with, with trying to work out what makes a genuine ecumenical council. But so, so there are loads of these fake councils um, over the course of that period until finally, uh, because there's a massive um, Gothic invasion of the uh, of the Eastern Roman Empire, starting in 376, um, uh, the the Eastern Emperor gets killed in battle fighting against the Goths, and uh, and his um, his nephews who are ruling the Western Empire are not particularly talented chaps on the battlefield, and and there's two of them for for obscure reasons. There's two of them running the Western Empire, and neither of them. So it's obviously you just send one of them to the east to take over, and but neither of them wants to go. Uh, because they're no good, at, they're no good, and they're terrified of actually having to face the Goths on the battlefield. This is some um, Valentinian the Second and uh, Grecian, and neither of them want to go across to um, to the Western Empire. So they get this guy who's a famous general out of retirement um, uh, called Theodosius. And, uh, and they say, you can be the Eastern Emperor. And he's like, oh, wow, I thought my career was over. Great. And uh, so they, they make him the Eastern Emperor. And they send him over to the East um, to deal with uh, the Goths, which he kind of more or less does. It's a bit tricky because the Roman Empire's army is not in the best situation at the time. So he kind of appeases, stroke, get, reduces the Goths. It's not quite, it's all a bit obscure how he finally gets them under control. Probably, you know, you don't want to see how the sausage was made. And, um, and uh, but he's a Latin and he's and, and and in general, the Latin bishops are really strong against Arianism, so long as the Pope is being really strong. And then at one point, the Pope wobbles a bit, and they all capitulate. Um, so yeah, that's the tendency among Latin bishops throughout history. But anyway, but, the, but, uh, but in general, by sympathy, the Latin bishops are not particularly um, into Arianism, and neither are the Latin faithful. So the um, so Theodosius, he's not interested in Arianism at all. So he goes over and he's like, right, this Arianism thing, it's over, chaps. And uh, so he issues this famous law, the Edict of Thessalonica, in 380, which uh, makes um, makes Catholicism the religion of the Roman Empire, um, the, defined as, as as the faith in the in the triune God who is you know equally three persons one godhead um and uh, and defined in terms of agreeing with what the, what the bishop of rome says and what the bishop of alexandria says as well because the because athanasius has been this great heroic figure preserving the true faith through this whole crisis and um and then the following year he summons a council in constantinople and uh, and this is 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 now treated as the second ecumenical council but it's it's not some uh it wasn't really seen, just to give you a headache, it wasn't really seen as the second ecumenical council at the time because really it was only Eastern bishops there and it wasn't all the Eastern bishops there because there was a dispute over who was the right, even among the Catholics, there was a dispute over who was the rightful patriarch of Antioch and the Egyptians and the, and the, and the, 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 the Latins were on one side of this dispute and most of the people in the East were on the other side of this dispute and, and that sort of embittered things a bit. So in fact, it's only because the fourth ecumenical council listed it as the second ecumenical council, that it becomes definitely the second ecumenical council. At the time, it wouldn't necessarily have been seen as the second ecumenical council, but 
they added to the creed because a new a new heresy had arisen called Macedonianism, which did not, accepted the uh, divinity of Christ but denied the divinity of the Holy Spirit. So, in order to make it clear that the Holy Spirit was also God, is also God, they added the, the so the second bit or the last bit of the creed that we say now. So, so in um, in, in the creed of Nicaea just ended and in the Holy Spirit and hadn't really said anything about the Holy Spirit, just said that we definitely believe in Him, um, and uh, and then. And then the, the creed of Constantinople repeated the creed of Nicaea and then said, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, etc. Et and um, uh, it didn't say from the Father and the Son, and that's obviously going to cause uh, trouble later on for various reasons. Um, it's, uh, so, but more or less, they put the Constantinople 2, sorry, Constantinople 1, uh, First Council of Constantinople in 381, put together the creed that we now have. But it did as something else, which uh, caused enormous trouble, uh, which is still going on to this day, which is that it tried to claim second spot in the church for the Bishop of Constantinople, which was quite outrageous um, because the, the See of Constantinople was, no one's quite sure how old it is. There are some much later traditions that it goes back to St. Andrew. But at the time, from evidence from that period, it's not easy to prove that it was older than 100 years or so at that point. And um, it may have been that it goes all the way back to St. Andrew, but it's, you can't really prove it. And it was definitely not a high-ranking uh, see in the church. The Bishop of Constantinople had been uh, a suffragan bishop of, uh, of the Bishop of Heraclea. So he was like in the bottom position on the entire hierarchy, the lowest kind of diocesan bishop that you could have. And suddenly he was now the head of, he was the bishop of the city, which had been completely re redone by Constantine. It was originally called Byzantium. Constantine refounded it as Constantinople as this massive new Eastern Imperial capital. And uh, so he was like, I must be important because I'm the bishop of this hugely important city. But in fact, I mean, there was no reason why he was supposed to be important. And, uh, and, but it was in his town, um, uh, the, the Council of Constantinople, so, so, the, um, uh, so they got in there into the disciplinary decrees of Constantinople, one, uh, that, uh, that the Bishop of Constantinople was second after the Bishop of Rome. Now the bishop who was actually traditionally second after the Bishop of Rome was the Bishop of Alexandria, who was the hero bishop who'd been defending the true faith through the whole of the crisis. So they're like, absolutely not. And this starts off this, I mean, the popes refused to um, uh, ratify this, um, this, this canon of Constantinople I saying that the Bishop of Constantinople is number two in the church. But it causes a massive bitterness and bad feeling between the Bishop of Alexandria and the Bishop of Constantinople. And huge numbers of problems in the church from that point onwards stem from the fact that at, at every opportunity the Bishop of Alexandria is trying to prove that the Bishop of Constantinople is a heretic in order to emphasize to everybody um, uh, that, that, that Alexandria is, is the guy to back in the East, not Constantinople. And that's actually the Bishop of Constantinople is often a heretic. So, so it's uh, so, so often Alexandria is on the money, but sometimes he isn't. And, uh, and that causes a lot of trouble. So, so they, they try and get um, St. John Chrysostom deposed and uh, for being a heretic, which he definitely isn't. And they, they try and get, um, they try and get uh, Bishop Flavian uh, deposed, the one who's beaten up by the, by the monk at the pseudo second council of Ephesus. Um, and uh, eventually it leads Alexandria off into schism, a terrible schism, totally un 
which has been which is continues to this day so the largest group of egyptian christians to this day are are the the, the, the coptic orient sorry the coptic orthodox church miaphysite who are who who were kind of sort of maneuvered themselves accidentally into schism in the fourth century because of their grudge with this with with constantinople oh, wow. so that's the first two ecumenical councils i don't know if i've used my time up no let's go let's go and just wrap it up right there and we'll do the other uh <laughs> the remainders throughout because <laughs> if not we'll never see uh we'll, we'll go to sleep through in about that uh, about the 10th council <laughs> we won't eat <laughs> sure so Doc, thank, Dr. Al, thank you very much. I uh, hope everyone enjoyed that. We'll do a series on this. And his book, is the book out yet? Uh, Integralism, a manual of, uh, of political philosophy. Yes, it is out. Um, uh, last I checked, you can buy it in hardback on Amazon.com. And you can buy it uh, directly from the publisher in the U.S., in softback that's casemate academic if you look them up you can buy it in softback directly from them for 31 dollars just checking there um and um and soon it'll be on amazon.com for 31 dollars as well and there'll also be a kindle version uh, which will be even cheaper than that very good I'll, I'll link i'll link all those in the show notes along with the uh, the institute you're at and uh yeah, till next time. Uh, hopefully you'll feel better next time. And uh, thanks a lot again. We'll see you soon. Great. God bless. Bye-bye. You too.